Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series in Genesis today, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People, with a message entitled, The Real Prosperity Gospel. So let's turn our Bibles to Genesis 26, 12 to 33, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Since I'm speaking about the prosperity gospel, well, you might wonder if I've lost my mind. You know, the so-called prosperity gospel refers to a teaching that's held by some, which states that health and financial prosperity is promised to all believers in this life if we can only access it by faith. Some of you have been wounded by this teaching because it has left scores of people devastated with its false promises. And I heard of one person telling me that when their infant died of SIDS, which is sudden infant death syndrome, that they were condemned for not having enough faith by their church. That is, they were unable to prevent Satan from taking their child. They should have had enough faith. I have no words to describe my disgust of such a shameless theology. In an article in the Journal of Pediatrics in the late 1990s examined the deaths of 172 children whose families refused medical care because of things like word faith teaching. They found that 81% of the deaths could have been prevented if the parents had sought medical help. Now listen, I believe that God is still in the business of healing today. But I do not believe in the prosperity gospel that states that health and prosperity is always a consequence of genuine faith. I, I say it's a false teaching, it's a heresy, and we do well to stay away from it. You know, when the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 lists the great heroes of the faith, he lists some whose lives are described, well, here it is in verses 35 to 38. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You know, later, the writer of Hebrews would say that all of these were commended for their faith. Listen, if only in this life we hope in Christ, in other words, if the resurrection or the gospel is not true, well, we're fools in this life. Because sometimes poverty and suffering is exactly what the gospel brings. So what's the relationship between God and money? Now, we can't answer that question fully today, but we're going to learn something of that from our passage. So let's start by reading Genesis 26, 12 to 16. It says, And Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Let's put this text into context. First of all, just a few kilometers up the road from Isaac, I suspect there was a wasteland. There must have been, remember? Famine was raging throughout the great portion of the land, and Isaac had made plans to escape to Egypt. But God had appeared to him and told him to stay put, 
right there in a place called Gerar, not far from the Mediterranean Sea. And Isaac obeys. In fact, as we saw in our last study, it was a courageous act of radical obedience to God. He trusted or had faith that God would care for him. Now, it seems that Isaac plants a crop, and at first, that alone seems like madness. But given the amount of wells he digs later on, I assume Isaac has found a way to irrigate his property. If you've ever been in places where there are green irrigated farms in the middle of a desert, well, you'll get the picture. So using advanced farming techniques, Isaac has an unbelievable harvest. It's a hundredfold. Before the days of modern farming methods, a hundredfold yield would be considered as good as it gets. So I put two events together. First is the bumper crop, and second is the famine, which would have made grain prices soar, and Isaac has just hit the perfect storm. He's, he's making money like he's never imagined. Now, Moses, who writes this, is a historian and comes to a conclusion. The reason why this has happened, he says, is because God has blessed Isaac. Why does he come to that conclusion? Well, for one, Isaac wouldn't ever have gone to Gerar if God had not told him to. He would have been in Egypt spending every last penny to buy food to feed his cattle, his servants, and his family, and would have emerged out of the famine alive but broke. Instead, he's getting wealthy and says, Moses, this is the blessing of God. In other words, his obedience of faith led to his wealth. Now, as we consider the message of the real prosperity gospel from this text, I want to give five principles regarding prosperity. First, a godly life sometimes has economic advantages, and that's true. For Isaac, obedience turned into wealth. Let me say something that may surprise you. Obedience often has financial benefit. Missiologists, especially those who study the advance of the gospel among people groups that have never heard it before, note a phenomenon they call redemption and lift. In other words, a group of people comes to Christ and within one generation, they're wealthier than those people who did not come to Christ. Well, how did that happen? Did they name it and claim wealth? Well, no, that wasn't it. They learned to live faithfully. Men stopped beating their wives. Men started working rather than demanding that their wives do all the work. Alcoholism went down. People stopped spending their resources on foolish things. They began to realize that their money was a resource in which they were to glorify God. And within one generation, they were building churches and homes and took care of their families. It's called redemption and lift. Same is often true today. I've said it before, put two people, one who's an obedient, spirit-led believer next to an unbeliever, and both, let's say they make 75000 a year, and I tell you, the believer will be wealthier. He's not going to divorce his wife. He's not going to waste his money on alcohol and tobacco and gambling and parties and hundreds of forms of useless entertainment. It won't be parties It'll be a Bible study to find his friendship needs that are satisfied in the richness of Christian fellowship. And that don't cost that much. He will avoid indebtedness. He will abhor impulse buying. He will not buy a bigger house or car than he can afford, and he will content himself in the joy of the Lord. He'll give to the Lord and support his family, and that will make him wealthy. Like Moses, I would look at that and I would see the blessing of God which comes through the obedience of faith. Let me repeat the first point. 
The godly life often has economic advantages. It's not name it and claim it. It's called wise stewardship of the resources that God has entrusted us with. Second, notice also that the godly life leads to wise choices rather than choices that are driven by ego and anger and self-seeking advantage. The godly man or woman is able to control his or her impulses and manage his or her baser desires, relying on the Holy Spirit to give self-control. Let's see that in Isaac's life. First, as his wealth grows in relation to the Philistines, Abimelech the king comes to him and asks him to leave, and the reason is stunning. He says in verse 16, you are much mightier than we are. How can that be? Well, if Abimelech is a king, how can a herdsman and a nomad like Isaac be stronger? And even if that's so, what right does Abimelech have to demand that he leave now that he's financially prospering? It's time for Isaac to fight for what's his, right? Well, it must be that Isaac, his success in business, must have had a formidable company of servants. They would have included farmhands and technical engineers who designed and operated his irrigation system, along with a small standing military who would have been on hand to protect his investments. And Abimelech is intimidated and demanded that Isaac leave. He foresees problems down the road. And he's right there. There could have been problems. And so there are two options before Isaac. Refuse and risk open hostility and eventually war, or agree and leave and seek alternative options. If he refuses and war ensues, yeah, he might win, but that would have had long-term consequences. He takes the first option he's going to leave, and that's telling. Isaac is a man of peace. That's a godly impulse. Well, let's keep reading, verses 17 to 22. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the name that his father had given them. And when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Isaac has found a place now where he can prosper. This month, check out Truth in Life Today as Dr. John Newfeld begins a four-week study in the book of Matthew. And then, beginning in July, join Dr. Newfeld as he invites special guests Stephanie Gray, Phil Calloway, and Paul Park into the studio to discuss some of the most timely topics of the day. Truth in Life Today can be seen every Sunday on Vision TV at 12.30 p.m. Eastern, anytime online at backtothebible.ca, or by subscribing to Back to the Bible Canada's mobile app or YouTube channel. Truth in Life Today is an example of one more Bible teaching resource made available through the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Perhaps this month you'd support the ongoing efforts of this ministry with a donation toward our critical fiscal year-end goal of $325,000. Your gift sustains every program and resource of Back to the Bible Canada nationally and globally. Call us today with your financial support at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
It's easy to fight for your rights if you have the strength and the courage. But Isaac chose the way of peace rather than perpetual conflict. It's a part of his godly character. And even though he encounters problems, eventually, by seeking peace, he finds a place where no one's quarreling with him. He's taken the road of humility. I have many times dealt with Christians who are argumentative, self-centered, proud, unwilling to listen, unable to learn, and even abusive to others. Some will even claim that they're being persecuted for Christ and so make all their disputes to be the devil coming against them. But every person that I know like that has a long string of broken relationships. But the godly life makes us loving and peaceful and gentle, even while we work hard to care for our own household. That's real prosperity. Third, we also notice in Isaac that the godly life combines worship and work in one unified whole. Let's look at verses 23 to 25. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. You know, when we began studying this chapter last week, we saw the significance of God appearing before Isaac. Twice during his lifetime, God had appeared to Isaac, and in each case, he reaffirms his covenant with him. I'm not going to repeat that study here, but I want us to notice something that deals with the issue of prosperity. In the place where God met Isaac, according to verse 25, Isaac builds both an altar of worship and also dug a well to further his economic interests. And from that, let me point out a truism for all believers. True believers do not build a wall of separation between Sunday and Monday. Both are meant for worship. You know, Proverbs 16, verse 3 gives us a bit of counsel. It says, commit your work to the Lord. And here's a problem that some of us have. You know, we might say to our pastor or to a missionary or to an evangelist, you know, someone in full-time Christian work, that person is working for the Lord. And in that, we exclude the teacher, the mechanic, the fireman, the, the business person, the therapist, and so forth. You know, in his excellent book entitled The Case for Traditional Protestantism, author Terry Johnson speaks of how from the teaching of Martin Luther and people like Calvin and Zwingli and other reformers, how the idea of the Reformation changed the whole idea of work. Johnson says each person was said to have his or her calling from God, to be pursued to the glory of God. This was one of the many insights that flowed from the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Paul Marshall summarizes the impact of the new outlook. He said, it was through the idea of calling that everyday work acquired religious significance. The peasant and the merchant came to be seen as doing God's work as much as the nun, the priest, and the magistrate. Now think of how radical that is. Let's say for a moment you work for a hydroelectric company. You know, some time ago, I remember reading a fascinating article which said that all the good things in the Western world are completely dependent on electricity. Take away electricity and we have no cars, no lights, no, no heat, no trucking, no shipping, no modern agriculture, no ability to do mass communication, no medicine, no clean water. I mean, the list went on and on. Electricity has been God's gift of grace to us that allows us to live life with decency. 
Now, if you work for a hydro company, you're a servant of Christ to bring God's grace into people's lives. Each day as you go to work, you do the work of God by serving the betterment of humanity. This work is an act of obedience. It's done with all diligence, for you're doing it unto the Lord. And when Sunday comes, you bow your head in worship before a God who has allowed you to serve him in such an honorable way. So have you ever heard the phrase, the Protestant work ethic? Well, that's it. That's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. A life that sees no wall of difference between work and worship. See, that life that combines worship and work in a unified whole leads to prosperity. For if you're not slacking off of work, instead you're working for the Lord, well, that leads to real prosperity. Now, I'm going through principles from Isaac's life, and the fourth one here is that Isaac's godly life leads to long-term peace. You know, it wasn't long before Abimelech goes out to to a valley where Isaac is, and and with him comes the king's advisors and the, the king's military commander. And he wants a peace treaty with Isaac. And at first, Isaac's genuinely angry. Look at verses 26 and 27. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar, with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to him, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? That this is an amazing encounter seems obvious. Abimelech and the Philistines know that God is blessing this man, and the best they can now do is sign a non-aggression pact. It's in their best interest. If things carry on the way they are, they believe that Isaac will become so strong and so wealthy and his resources will know no bounds that he'll be able to overthrow them and leave them devastated. And at this point, I want you to imagine the matter from Isaac's perspective. He could seek to overthrow Abimelech or he could agree to seek peace. And for Isaac, the answer is peace. Same is true for Christian business people today. They don't seek to destroy their competition. It's never their goal. If you're a businessman and you've been destroying people, you need to repent. Now, the fifth principle we learn from Isaac. He knows the godly life sees compounding benefits. And here I'm reading verses 28 to 33. They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sibha. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. See, the name Sibha means oath. And this is where he signed an oath, a contract. And so the city of Beersheba is the city of the oath. Peace is secured. More water is discovered. His prosperity compounds. It grows. The very godly principles that brought prosperity have now given rise to greater prosperity than he's ever known before. You see, it is true that the obedient life will often result in financial blessings. But here, I simply cannot end with this text. I I simply have to bring the New Testament and the teaching of Jesus into this. Because there's something else that just begs to be said, and to ignore it now would be to miss something essential. 
When Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he instructed the young pastor to tell his congregation that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a host of troubles that launch people into ruin, and some have shipwrecked their faith and some have pierced themselves through with many griefs. So here's an amazing conundrum. Living godly will often bring financial prosperity, but financial prosperity will often bring ungodliness, so much so that Jesus warned that it was extremely hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus told parables like the rich man and Lazarus, pointing out in the end of the day that the poor are those most likely to see God, and the rich are those who become arrogant and forget God. So what's to be done? Does all of this mean we're on a horrible cycle? Our poverty makes us see God. Seeking God often brings financial prosperity. Financial prosperity makes us forget God. I mean, is there no way off the treadmill? Yeah, there is. God tells us to seek the welfare of others. God tells us that we are to practice sacrificial generosity in our wealth. Prosperity must be married to a heartfelt generosity and a deep-seated love for others. So here's a bit of counsel. Don't wait until you get wealthy to give. Seek the welfare of others now. If you're not doing it now, getting wealthy will only ruin your own soul. It will lead you to be self-serving and it will lead you into a godless life. Well, that's the real prosperity gospel. And you need to bear that in your own soul. Seek eternity. Don't seek the wealth of this life. Seek to bless others. Don't seek your own interests. John, I just want to ask you, uh, uh, not an easy question, but a quick question. What would be a word you would have for those people that have been blessed with wealth? Yeah, I probably have more than one word. I mean, one word I would give is to say, please understand that your wealth comes from God. If you don't acknowledge that, you will become arrogant. And every single day you need to say, Lord, that has come through your hand and you have allowed me to have it. Now, I guess the next word is to say, you know, uh, this all belongs to you and you've called upon me to be generous with your money. So I think we have to see it from that perspective as well. So, you know, when Paul says to Timothy to be willing to share, um, it, it, it is a, a requirement uh, that we use our wealth to benefit not ourselves but others. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us here again tomorrow as we continue our series in the book of Genesis, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People, right here on Back of the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and special friends and musicians, The Weebs. You'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, laugh and be encouraged, and enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. Come on your own or with your family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call, everything the ship has to offer, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. 
Check it out and get on board at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.